The U.S. has 1,951 miles of shared border with Mexico and Florida is just 90 miles away from Cuba. So needless to say, the world's most powerful imperialist country has a special relationship and impact on the region. This special relationship includes countless military interventions, assassinations, torture, coups, sabotage, sanctions, and the training and funding of counter-revolutionary guerrillas, paramilitaries, and national armies. All of this was foreshadowed in the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, and we'll take a look at all of that history. Just what is communism? You communist. Communist? A specter is haunting Europe. The specter of communism. communism. The presence within America of communist propaganda dedicated to the establishment of a new order. Communism, stronger, more determined than ever. Are there communists in this organization? Thousands of Americans actually aiding the communists. The children of present-day America will live in a communist society. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Socialist Revolution Podcast, a podcast for communists. My name is John Peterson. I'm the executive editor of Socialist Revolution Magazine. You can visit our website at www.socialistrevolution.org. Every episode we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. Above all, we offer an unapologetically communist perspective on the world, on the need to bring down the Democrats and Republicans, and for the building of a mass revolutionary communist party that can smash capitalism and usher in a world of superabundance for everyone. This episode is based on a lead-off I gave at the 2023 Pan American Marxist School organized by the IMT and held in Mexico City in early December. December 2nd, 2023 marked the 200-year anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine, and I think we can learn a lot about Lenin's conception of imperialism by applying it to Latin America and tracing the history and evolution of this doctrine. Obviously, the U.S. isn't the only imperialist power with connections to the region. There were centuries of Spanish and Portuguese colonial rule, enslavement, and robbery. Many other European powers also had colonies throughout the Caribbean. Britain and France intervened on multiple occasions to protect their commercial interests. And we saw the short reign of Maximilian I as Emperor of Mexico. And let's not forget that Germany promised money and the return of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona if Mexico would attack the U.S. during World War I, as revealed by the infamous Zimmerman telegram. And today, Spain, France, and the United Kingdom have significant investments in energy, infrastructure, telecommunications, manufacturing, and banking. But as the Mexican dictator Porfirio Díaz supposedly said, Pobre México, tan lejos de Dios y tan cerca de Estados Unidos. Which means, poor Mexico, so far from God and so close to the United States. The U.S. has 1,951 miles of shared border with Mexico. Mexico and Florida is just 90 miles away from Cuba. So needless to say, the world's most powerful imperialist country has a special relationship and impact on the region. This special relationship includes countless military interventions, assassinations, torture, coups, sabotage, sanctions, and the training and funding of counter-revolutionary guerrillas, paramilitaries, and national armies. All of this was foreshadowed in the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, and we'll take a look at all of that history. But first, let's establish a theoretical baseline by briefly reviewing Lenin's approach to the question of imperialism.
imperialism, which retains all of its force today. In his classic work, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, Lenin used facts, figures, and arguments to analyze what he calls capitalist imperialism to differentiate it from the imperialism of societies like ancient Rome. He lays down the principal stages in the emergence of monopoly capitalism as follows. Between 1840 and 1870, you had the apex of development of free competition, and monopoly was in an embryonic stage. After the economic crisis of 1873, triggered by a collapse in banking and known as the Long Depression, there was a prolonged upturn, a lengthy period of development of cartels, but they were the exception, a transitory phenomenon. This boom ended with the panic of 1900 to 1903, and by the time the dust had settled, these cartels, these monopolies, these trusts had become one of the foundations of economic life. As Lenin puts it, the 20th century marks the turning point from the old capitalism to the new, from the domination of capital in general to the domination of finance capital. Capitalism has been transformed into imperialism. After warning about the inadequate, conditional, and relative value of all definitions in general, which can never embrace all the concatenations of a phenomenon in its full development, Lenin gives a definition of imperialism that includes five basic features. The first is that the concentration of production and capital has developed to such a high degree that it has created monopolies which play a decisive role in economic life. Second is the merging of banking capital and industrial capital into finance capital. On this basis, we see the rise of a financial oligarchy whereby a small group of financial institutions and industrial capitalists wield immense power over the economy. These are fused closely with the state, which defends and enforces the interests of this oligarchy both at home and abroad. And as we all know, there's a revolving door between the big corporations, government ministries, and the so-called think tanks and lobbyists. Thirdly, you have the export of capital, as distinguished from the export of commodities, and this acquires exceptional importance. This creates an international network of dependence on finance capital, which spreads its net over all countries of the world. An important role in this is played by banks founded in the colonies and by their branches. And of course, the export of capital influences and greatly accelerates the development of capitalism in those countries to which it is exported. Fourth in Lenin's list is the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world among themselves. These cartels, syndicates, and trusts started by dividing the home market among themselves, obtaining more or less complete possession of the industry of their own country. But as we know, under capitalism, the home market is inevitably bound up with the foreign market. So fifth is the territorial division of the planet among the biggest capitalist powers. To the numerous old motives of colonial policy, finance capital has added the struggle for sources of raw materials, the export of capital, spheres of influence, profitable deals, concessions, monopoly profits, and so on. As an example, Lenin notes that already by 1900, nine-tenths of Africa had been claimed by one imperialist power or another. It's worth noting that he explicitly says that the division of the world does not preclude its redivision if the relation of forces changes as a result of uneven development, war, bankruptcy, etc. These redivisions can occur through a combination of trade deals, trade wars, proxy wars, and direct wars. We've seen plenty of all of that over the last hundred years, and it continues to this day. In short, as Marx explained in the Communist Manifesto, capitalism creates a world in its own image, and even more so in the epoch of imperialism. But there is an inherent contradiction in the development of this new stage of capitalism. As Lenin explains, free competition is the basic feature of capitalism and of commodity production generally, but monopoly is the exact opposite of free competition and therefore negates it. This process leads to the creation of large-scale industry, forcing out small industry, replacing large-scale by still larger-scale industry. However, the monopolies which have grown out of free competition do not eliminate the latter, but exist above it and alongside it and thereby give rise to a number of very 
acute, intense antagonisms, frictions, and conflicts. This is a contradiction that can't be resolved within the limits of capitalism itself. So this all marks a new stage of world concentration of capital and production incomparably higher than the preceding stages. This results in immense progress in the socialization of production. In particular, the process of technical invention and improvement becomes socialized. Production becomes social, but appropriation remains private. The social means of production remain the private property of a few. Lenin goes on to say that the general framework of formally recognized free competition remains, and the yoke of a few imperialists on the rest of the population becomes a hundred times heavier, more burdensome, and intolerable. Of course, from a Marxist perspective, all of this lays the objective material conditions for socialism. To give an example of the concentration of capital, take the current situation in the US. With a population of 332 million people, there are around 38.8 million registered companies. But just 500 of these companies, known as the Fortune 500, are worth an estimated $33.6 trillion and account for 66% of GDP. That's an incredible concentration of the means of production. And it means that there will be a lot less for us to nationalize and to put under workers' control than there was in the past. So really, the task of the socialist revolution is merely to bring production and appropriation into harmony. Instead of private appropriation of the wealth created through socialized production, we'll have social appropriation of the wealth created by socialized production. As the utopian socialist Saint-Simon put it, the present anarchy of production which corresponds to the fact that economic relations are developing without uniform regulation must make way for organization in production. In that sense, as Lenin explains, monopoly is the transition from the capitalist system to a higher socioeconomic order. He calls this a transitional period of history. Not transitional in the way that we understand socialism as a transitional period between capitalism and communism, but a transitional period between peak capitalism and the socialist revolution. As Lenin puts it, imperialism is the eve of the social revolution of the proletariat. This has been confirmed since 1917 on a worldwide scale. In his book, Lenin also polemicizes with Karl Kautsky and the petty bourgeois utopian opportunist reformists. These were the social chauvinists who supported their imperialisms when World War I broke out and the workers of the world were sent to slaughter each other. World War I is all the evidence needed to show the absurdity of Kautsky's argument that that super-imperialism or ultra-imperialism would somehow lead to a prolonged epoch of peaceful development and gradual social reforms. Lenin demonstrates that there can be no return to pre-imperialist capitalism, and he approvingly quotes Hilferding, who says, The reply of the proletariat to the economic policy of finance capital to imperialism cannot be free trade, but socialism. The aim of proletarian policy cannot today be the ideal of restoring free competition, which has now become a reactionary ideal, but the complete elimination of competition by the abolition of capitalism. There's a lot more to the question, which is why Lenin wrote an entire book about it, but that's the basic outline and provides us with the rich theoretical framework for understanding the world we live in today. I should add, however, that related to this, and just as important to understanding the dynamics of imperialism and the class struggle in the modern epoch, are Trotsky's theory of the permanent revolution and the idea of uneven and combined development, though it would take at least an entire episode each to cover these ideas fully. Maybe we'll get to that sometime in the future. Just briefly though, we can say that the capitalists and the more backward countries arrive too late on the stage of history to play an independent role. Countries like the US already had a huge head start, and the US in particular had ideal geographic and ecological conditions in which to develop. As Lenin wrote in Imperialism, the uneven and spasmodic development of individual enterprises, individual branches of industry, and individual countries is inevitable under the capitalist system. For 
For a variety of objective and subjective reasons, the countries of Latin America were hampered in their own development and emerged as independent nations already dependent on the world market and international capital. The only serious way to play catch-up, to pay their deep debts, and to resist becoming an outright colony was for the leaders of these countries to become partners in crimes of imperialism in one form or another. And the only domestic political form this could take was some form of Bonapartism. In the case of Mexico, this was carried out by dictators like Porfirio Diaz, who deepened bourgeois relations and built a repressive state apparatus to hold things together. Others, like Lázaro Cárdenas in Mexico, adopted a more radical nationalist and anti-imperialist rhetoric vis-a-vis -vis imperialism. But in the final analysis, since they limited themselves to capitalist property relations and institutions, their only option was to only slightly bend the rules while delivering the masses to the exploiters on a platter. So how does all of this apply to the question of imperialism in Latin America today? To put things into a historical context, let's go back now to the Monroe Doctrine. Or actually, let's go back even before the Monroe Doctrine to the Burr Conspiracy. I bet a lot of listeners haven't even heard of that. Now, just a decade or so after the adoption of the U.S. Constitution in the early 1800s, Aaron Burr, a former vice president, was accused of conspiring to conquer parts of Mexico and chunks of the southeastern U.S. to set himself up as the head of a new empire. This is the same guy who was also involved in the attempt by the American colonists to take over Canada during the American Revolution, and they came very close to taking Quebec City in 1775. Had it not been for some bad luck in a snowstorm on New Year's Eve, Canada might have been part of the United States. Burr was eventually acquitted of the conspiracy charges brought against him, but this just shows how far back U.S. ambitions for expansion across the continent go. In 1803, of course, the U.S. nearly doubled in size when it paid Napoleon I $15 million for the Louisiana Purchase. That vast territory was eventually divided up into 13 separate states. 20 years later, in 1823, the young American Republic was still heavily agricultural and dependent on exports, but it was gradually industrializing, expanding infrastructure such as canals and railways, and establishing its internal and external markets and relations. It was in this context that on December 2nd, the fifth president of the United States, James Monroe, articulated his famous foreign policy principle. The basic idea was that the United States rejected any further colonization or intervention in the Americas by European powers, and that any such attempts would be viewed as a threat. This was supposed to provide a kind of paternalistic defense of the many independent nations that had recently emerged across the Western Hemisphere. Remember, Bolivar's wars of independence in South America were still raging, Mexico had just won its independence from Spain in 1821, and Brazil from Portugal in 1822. But of course, there were ulterior motives. The U.S. was claiming its backyard as its own. After all, national security is more than just defending against foreign military aggression and internal rebellion. It also requires the ability to expand territorially and economically to continue building your power. Nonetheless, it seems that most Latin American leaders received Monroe's words with sincere gratitude, knowing full well that there was little the U.S. could do to enforce the doctrine, since Britain's navy still ruled the waves. Simón Bolívar apparently saw it as limited to immediate U.S. national policy and not as a plan for premeditated hemispheric hegemony. But Diego Portales, a Chilean businessman and minister, wrote these wise words to a friend. We have to be very careful, for the Americans of the North, the only Americans are themselves. In any case, the U.S. didn't have much of a military at that time, so most people just ignored it. But everything changes, and things eventually turn into their opposite. From being an oppressed colony of Britain, and winning the first successful revolutionary war for national independence in the world, the U.S. was eventually transformed into the biggest imperialist power and oppressor in the world. So when we say that things turn into their opposite, let's remember that the Monroe Doctrine also declared that the U.S. would not interfere in the affairs of the 
the European powers. That didn't stop it from getting directly involved in two world wars, the Cold War and the creation of NATO, the war on Kosovo, and now the war on Ukraine. It sent 12 million troops to Europe during World War II, and even today there are some 36,000 of them stationed in Europe at around 60 military bases. Compare this non-interference in European affairs to the US response when the Soviet Union put 42 nuclear missiles in Cuba in 1962. With vast resources and a population that more than tripled between 1800 and 1840, things moved quickly on the road to the US becoming a world power. By 1835, 30,000 Americans lived in Texas, where they outnumbered native Tejanos by 6 to 1. Back then, it was Mexico that tried to ban immigration from the US. But that worked about as well as it works today, and in 1836, Texas declared its independence from Mexico, and in 1845, it was annexed to the United States. This led to the Mexican-American War of 1846-48, the first real imperialist foray by the US as it expanded from the Atlantic to the Pacific and then set its sights on the world. The war officially ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Mexico was forced to recognize the annexation of Texas by the US, and it ceded around half of its territory, including the present-day states of California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and parts of Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. In return, the United States paid Mexico $15 million and assumed $3.25 million in debts owed by American citizens. Not a bad deal considering that today, the GDP of California alone is over $3 trillion, more than double the entire GDP of Mexico. Nonetheless, many in the US saw it as a predatory war and believed empire represented a mortal danger to the virtues of Republican government. General Ulysses S. Grant, the hero of the American Civil War, fought in several battles in Mexico and later declared, I do not think there was ever a more wicked war than that waged by the United States on Mexico. But of course, imperialism isn't about virtue or morality in the abstract, it's about money, markets, and power. But it wasn't all smooth sailing for the not-so-United States. The new territories stolen from Mexico exacerbated the existing tensions within the Republic, which couldn't continue what it called its manifest destiny until another little problem was solved, the question of slavery. This required a bloody and revolutionary civil war, which we detailed in an earlier series on this podcast. I think it's interesting to note that even in the middle of the war, there was a proposal for the North and South to stop fighting each other and to team up to kick the French out of Mexico, who had gotten in there taking advantage of the divisions north of the border. In fact, the Confederacy's plan, had it defeated the Union, was to build a slave empire, starting with Mexico and Cuba, with dreams of conquering the whole of Central and South America and the Caribbean. In fact, after winning the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant proposed using the victorious Union Army, which was then the largest best trained and best equipped military in the world to help the Mexicans kick Maximilian out. That didn't happen, of course, and the Mexicans got rid of their emperor the old-fashioned way, with an uprising led by Benito Juarez and a firing squad. Now, after the U.S. Civil War, American capitalism spent the next couple of decades consolidating its position, subjugating the indigenous peoples living in its western territories, and industrializing. This was the peak period of free competition and the growth of monopolies, as explained by Lenin. In just 30 years between 1860 and 1890, U.S. GDP quintupled from about $12 billion to over $60 billion. The GDP of the United Kingdom in 1890 was less than $11 billion. This clearly illustrates the economic basis for the rapid rise of U.S. imperialism and the decline of British imperialism. This was the age of the Carnegies, Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, and other robber barons of the Gilded Age, the period of cartels and trusts, as described by Lenin. Of course, along with economic expansion, a powerful working class was also 
also forged, as well as powerful unions and rising class struggle, from the Great Railroad Strike in the St. Louis Commune of 1877, to the fight for the eight-hour day in the Haymarket Riot in 1886, to the Homestead Steelworkers Strike in 1892, there were many heroic and inspiring struggles. And as Lenin had outlined, just because the world has been divided up doesn't mean it can't be redivided. An economic power like the U.S. needed a global outlet and it found the perfect target, the weak and decaying Spanish Empire, which had somehow managed to hold on to a few of its colonies. It was in this context that in 1898, the U.S. picked a fight with Spain. Now, U.S. imperialism has always found convenient pretexts to go to war. It entered World War I after the sinking of the Lusitania, World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the Vietnam War after the so-called Gulf of Tonkin incident, and after September 11th, it had the excuse it needed to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. In 1898, after an explosion sunk the USS Maine in Havana Harbor, the U.S. declared war on Spain. After just a few months of fighting, it had defeated Spain and won possession of the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. As always, this was done under the pretext of humanitarian intervention to liberate Cuba from colonial rule. As we know, Cuba formally gained its independence from the U.S. in 1902, but it remained a de facto colony until the Cuban Revolution many decades later. And even today, the U.S. has a prison camp and over 6,000 troops stationed at Guantanamo. As for the Philippines, it was brutally occupied until 1946. And to this day, Puerto Rico and Guam are unincorporated territories of the U.S. In other words, they're colonies. Which brings us to the start of the 20th century, which Lenin identified as the tipping point for full-fledged capitalist imperialism. In 1904, President Theodore Roosevelt, who had fought in Cuba during the Spanish-American War, announced the Roosevelt Corollary as an update to the Monroe Doctrine. At least in words, the original doctrine was non-interventionist in nature. Now, Roosevelt asserted that the U.S. had not only the right but the duty to intervene in the affairs of Latin American countries to maintain stability and to protect investments in infrastructure, trade routes, natural resources, and to ensure political stability favorable to U.S. interests. This was known as gunboat diplomacy, and this period saw a series of direct U.S. military interventions and occupations in Cuba, Nicaragua, Honduras, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and more. The U.S. also played a role in ensuring Panama's independence from Colombia in 1903, conveniently allowing for the building of the Panama Canal, which had huge implications for the U.S. economy. As Roosevelt bluntly explained his policy, speak softly and carry a big stick. This was the epoch of the so-called banana wars to defend the interests of the United Fruit Company. We also saw in these years the heroic strike of the copper miners of Cananea in northern Mexico, which was put down in blood with help from the paramilitary Arizona Rangers who crossed the border to defend the interests of the mine's American owners. It also saw the invasion and occupation of parts of Mexico during the Mexican Revolution. But let's not forget that this era also saw Pancho Villa's raid on Columbus, New Mexico, the last time an armed force invaded the U.S., or that Villa successfully evaded over 10,000 U.S. troops who chased him across northern Mexico for nearly a year during the so-called punitive expedition. As the retired U.S. general turned anti-war activist Smedley Butler summed up his activities during that part of the 20th century, I helped make Mexico, especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909-1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. Now, Howard Taft, who followed Teddy Roosevelt as president, leveraged the real power of U.S. imperialism with what he called dollar diplomacy. In fact, although we sometimes focus on the military,
monetary side of things, it is the almighty dollar and the export of cheap commodities and capital that have been the main weapons used by US imperialism to impose its will. As Marx wrote in the manifesto, this is the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls. Now, given the domestic crisis and instability of the 1930s, Teddy's cousin, Franklin D. Roosevelt, FDR, shifted gears again with the so-called good neighbor policy towards Latin America, which emphasized respect for sovereignty, economic cooperation, and the peaceful resolution of conflicts. Some naive souls on the left sincerely imagined that the U.S. really could be a good neighbor and that it would defend Latin American countries from the Nazis or Japan, all in the name of liberty and democracy. But imperialism is imperialism no matter what guise it adopts. As the famous British imperialist Lord Palmerston put it, we have no eternal allies and we have no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual and those interests it is our duty to follow. The U.S. emerged from World War II as the world's most powerful imperialist country and that remains the case today. But remember, in the 1920s and 1930s, Trotsky didn't rule out a war between the U.S. and the U.K. In the end, the transition from British to American hegemony was affected without a direct confrontation between the two, mainly because of the way the war with Germany played out. In the post-World War II era, U.S. imperialism balanced against the Soviet Union, which was also strengthened despite the mass devastation and population loss, no thanks to Stalin. Although the world was de facto divided between those two powers, the U.S. took over from Britain as the world's policemen and set the economic, diplomatic, and military tone for many decades. For example, the Bretton Woods Agreement designated the U.S. dollar as the primary reserve currency and other countries agreed to maintain exchange rates within a specified range relative to the dollar, and this lasted until the early 1970s. In fact, 37 countries and territories around the world used the U.S. dollar as their official currency or have it as one of their official currencies, including several Latin American countries. That's serious economic leverage over the destinies of millions of people in ostensibly sovereign countries. As we all know, the Cold War saw a revival of aggressive interventions by U.S. imperialism in Latin America, both overt and covert, with the fight against communism as the main cover and motivation. A seemingly endless stream of assassinations, invasions, coups, terrorist attacks, counter-revolutionary armies, and brutal dictatorships involving pretty much every country in the region revealed the true face of this good neighbor. To this day, the U.S. has dozens of military bases across Latin America. It spends more than 10 times as much on its military as the whole of Latin America combined. However, the main way it dominates and exploits is not through direct military intervention or occupation. Most Latin American countries are formally independent. But as James Connolly, the Irish revolutionary, once said, if you remove the English army tomorrow and hoist the green flag over Dublin Castle, unless you set about the organization of the Socialist Republic, your efforts will be in vain. England will still rule you. She would rule you through her capitalists, through her landlords, through her financiers, through the whole array of commercial and individualist institutions she has planted in this country and watered with the tears of our mothers and the blood of our martyrs. The only way to end imperialism is by uprooting its economic and class basis through the socialist revolution. Because the way imperialism really dominates is through the export of capital in one form or another. And it has lots and lots of ways to do this. Often it leans on comprador capitalists as local agents to defend its interests. So-called free trade is another element in U.S. imperialism's arsenal to maintain its dominance in the region. The U.S. has comprehensive free trade agreements in force with 20 countries, including 11 in Latin America. And after 26 years of NAFTA, it was replaced with the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement with terms even more favorable for U.S. imperialism. It's not an accident that Donald Trump called it the best and most important trade deal ever made by the USA. From Coca-Cola to McDonald's, Walmart to Procter & Gamble, Ford to General Motors, 
IBM to Microsoft, U.S. corporations have a huge presence in Latin America and dominate key sectors of the economy, from food and beverages to retail, automotive, consumer goods, and technology. And we all know about the infamous maquiladoras, especially along the Mexican border. Most of these are owned by U.S. companies operating under preferential trade agreements, and they import raw materials duty-free, which are assembled or processed by workers for low wages and with few protections, with the finished products then being exported back to the U.S. As for finance capital, a key element in Lenin's characterization of imperialism, U.S. banks account for about 40% of total banking assets in Latin America. In 2022, Latin America received nearly $225 billion in foreign direct investment, FDI, the highest on record. Brazil received 41% of this, followed by Mexico with 17%. But it's interesting to note that the U.S. only accounted for 38% of FDI invested. The Latin American transnationals, the translatinas, accounted for around 33% of FDI in the region, which is pretty significant. The European Union is also stepping up its investment in the region and accounts for 17%. But there's a new player in the never-ending redivision of the world among the capitalists, Chinese imperialism, which accounted for around 9% of FDI in the region. Modern China fits Lenin's definition of imperialism to the letter. Just consider this. Back in the year 2000, just 2% of Latin America's exports went to the Chinese market. Over the next eight years, trade grew at an average annual rate of 31%, reaching $180 billion by 2010. By 2021, trade totaled $450 billion. Some economists predict that it could exceed $700 billion by 2035. China now ranks as South America's top trading partner and is the second largest for Latin America as a whole, after the United States. Its main imports from the region are soybeans, copper, petroleum, oil, and other raw materials, and in return it exports higher value-added manufactured products, i.e. cheaper goods that undermine local industries. As of 2023, Beijing has free trade agreements in place with Chile, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Peru. 21 Latin American countries have already signed on the China's Belt and Road Initiative. In addition to FDI, Chinese banks loaned $137 billion to Latin American governments between 2005 and 2020, mainly to fund energy and infrastructure projects, and often in exchange for oil. In 2022 alone, loans from China totaled $813 million. Venezuela is the biggest borrower and currently has $60 billion worth of Chinese state loans, nearly double the amount for Brazil. China has exported millions of dollars in military aircraft, ground vehicles, air defense radars, and assault rifles to Venezuela, Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador, and Peru. It's also increasing its ties with Cuba. All of this was intensified during the pandemic through what some have called COVID-19 diplomacy. During the crisis, China distributed ventilators, test kits, and masks, and offered billions in loans for the purchase of hundreds of millions of vaccines. It has even invested in the space and satellites race through joint projects with several Latin American countries. I think it speaks volumes that, although China is not in the Americas, it is a voting member of the Inter-American Development Bank and the Caribbean Development Bank. With U.S. attention focused mainly on East Asia, Ukraine, and the Middle East, the American imperialists are worried that China is gaining ground. Trump's hardline approach with many countries only pushed them further into the arms of Beijing. Senators Bob Menendez and Marco Rubio have called China a malign influence in the region. And in 2021, Admiral Craig Fuller, the former head of the U.S. Southern Command, made this concise assessment. We are losing our positional advantage in this hemisphere and immediate action is needed to reverse this trend. Then there's the question of immigration and in particular the rising tensions at the U.S.-Mexico border, which is also contested by the narcos. As Lennon explained in his book on imperialism, one of the special features of imperialism is the decline in emigration from imperialist countries and the increase in immigration into these countries from the more backward countries where lower wages are paid. At the time, he wrote, in the United States, immigrants from Eastern 
Eastern and Southern Europe were engaged in the most poorly paid jobs, while American workers provided the highest percentage of overseers or of the better paid workers. Nowadays, Latin America has become the number one source of immigration, often undocumented, with Mexico, Central America, and increasingly South America as the main places of origin. Forced out of their countries by the economic and foreign policy of imperialism, millions of immigrants risked their lives in the hopes of achieving the American dream. But they're finding that the reality of life under U.S. capitalism is more like a living nightmare. All this cheap labor is essential for the functioning of the U.S. economy and for maintaining population levels. It drives down wages and boosts profits for the capitalists who use xenophobia and racism to divide and rule the workers. And as Lenin noted, imperialist ideology also penetrates the working class. No Chinese wall separates it from the other classes. So when we talk about fighting against the influence of alien class ideas in the workers' movement, we must also fight against these manifestations, not only petty bourgeois academic identity politics. Remittances from immigrant workers sent back to Latin America and the Caribbean are a significant source of income for the region, with over $96 billion sent back in 2021, most of it from the US. In the case of Mexico, the $44.4 billion sent annually in remittances accounts for around 3% of GDP. For El Salvador, remittances account for 20% of GDP. Without the escape valve of emigration to the US, these countries would be under even more pressure and we'd see even more explosions of the class struggle. Approximately 60.6 million people in the US are of Latino origin, around 18.5% of the total population. In California alone, 15.6 million people are of Latino origin, around 39% of the state population. And in Texas, it's 11.4 million people, around 39% of the population. Approximately 41 million people in the US speak Spanish as their primary language, which is around 13% of the population. Nearly 5 million Latinos live in Los Angeles alone, close to half the city's total population. This is a huge social force, and the vast majority are treated poorly and paid even worse, and over 10 million of them are undocumented. Many bring with them traditions of struggle from their countries of origin. In 1939, Trotsky famously wrote, by exporting commodities and capital, by building up its navy, by elbowing England aside, by buying up the key enterprises in Europe, by forcing its way into China, etc., American finance capital is digging with its own hands powder and dynamite cellars beneath its own foundation. I think we can say that an important part of that dynamite speaks Spanish. One final aspect I'd like to consider briefly is the relative decline of U.S. imperialism over the last historical period. Immediately after World War II, with its economy booming and infrastructure intact, the U.S. accounted for around 50% of world GDP, despite having just 6% of the world population. That concisely sums up the objective basis for U.S. power in the post-war world. Today, with just 4.25% of the population, it accounts for around 24% of world GDP, depending on how you measure it. That's still extremely high per capita, but it's a significant fall from where things were a few decades ago. And that right there sums up the objective basis for the relative decline of US power. It is still the world's only superpower, but it's no longer a hyperpower as it was briefly after the fall of the USSR. Here's a concrete example. For several decades, US military doctrine was based on the two-war construct. In other words, it was prepared to wage two major wars in two major theaters against two major regional powers. For example, against Russia and China in both Europe and East Asia. But that's no longer the case. By the early 2010s, they had to formally acknowledge that one major war is all they can handle. And even then, we've seen how careful they are not to get into it directly with Russia. Not only would it be a bloody and unpopular mess, it would seriously degrade their ability to confront China over Taiwan, for example. Just look at what happened in Afghanistan. After spending $2.3 trillion and sending as many as 100,000 troops at a time, they were forced into a humiliating withdrawal. This was the longest war ever waged by US 
U.S. imperialism, and despite claiming to have learned the lessons of Vietnam, everything collapsed and the Taliban took over practically overnight. So while it is still the dominant power on the planet as a whole, it is not necessarily the dominant power in every region of the planet. It can no longer pretend to have an iron grip on things and it has had to give up important ground. Just look at Israel, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, or even Qatar, all pursuing their own policies, little gangsters trying to get away with as much as they can under the overall domination of the Godfather. It's also a question of confidence. After Ukraine, can Taiwan, the Philippines, or even Japan or Australia be sure the US will defend them militarily as China continues to flex its muscles? But China's upward trajectory is not linear either. So part of its strategy to counterbalance US imperialism and the EU is through BRICS, which currently accounts for 25% of world GDP and 42% of the world's population. In January, they plan on adding Argentina, Ethiopia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, and Iran, which will bring them to 30% of world GDP and 45% of the population. This will provide an even bigger lifeline to Russia despite Western sanctions over Ukraine. They've even proposed the BRICS currency to be used for cross-border trade between these countries, which would reduce dependence on US imperialism and the fluctuations of the dollar. This is a serious threat to the post-war order, and according to Foreign Policy magazine, de-dollarization's moment might finally be here. Of course, this is all done in the name of multilateralism. People like Lula from Brazil and Ramaphosa from South Africa make many of the big BRICS announcements. And India is now the world's most populous country. But in the final analysis, it is China that calls the shots. With China's economy slowing down and the entire capitalist world heading inevitably towards another major crisis, there is a desperate struggle for markets, spheres of influence, and raw materials. Of course, we should have no illusions that there are not also imperialist rivalries between China and India, or even Saudi Arabia and Iran, Brazil and Argentina. But the biggest bully on the block, US imperialism, clearly has the biggest target on its back. All of this underlines the relative decline of US imperialism's power, and it opens important possibilities for the socialist revolution, not only in Latin America, but in the United States itself. How many times have we been told that we can't make a revolution in this or that country because US imperialism will send in the Marines or bombers or an aircraft carrier? But the class balance of forces is not what it was just a few decades ago. Although imperialism can be measured in dollars and tanks and fighter jets, the equation is far more complicated in the real world. If the US were to invade a Latin American country, not only would it face mass uprisings in its backyard, it would face massive unrest in its living room and the US itself, and not only from the millions of Latino immigrants. Just look how quickly the mood turned against supporting Israel after October 7th. Not that long ago, many people wrote off the US working class. Believe me, it wasn't so fun being an American abroad when George W. Bush was in office, but the experience of the last few decades has not been wasted and has had an enormous effect on consciousness. We've seen incredible events like the Occupy movement, the Bernie Sanders campaign, the George Floyd movement, and the millions of young people who now consider communism the ideal economic system. The world crisis of capitalism is pushing the entire planet toward revolution. Commenting on Latin America in the late 1930s, Trotsky wrote, eventually the question will be presented in a very acute form. Who is the master on this continent? The imperialists of the United States or the working masses of all the nations of America? This question by its very essence can only be resolved by an open conflict of forces, that is to say, by revolution, or more exactly, a series of revolutions. In those struggles against imperialism will participate, on the one hand, the American proletariat in the interests of its own defense, and on the other hand, the Latin American peoples who are struggling for their emancipation and who precisely for that reason will support the struggle of the American proletariat. But Trotsky made clear that he was not suggesting that the Latin American people passively await the revolution in the United States, or that the North American workers fold their arms until the Latin American people's moment of victory 
arrives. As he well put it, he who waits passively gets nothing. One must comprehend the reciprocal relation between the two principal currents of the contemporary struggle against imperialism. By merging at a certain stage, definite triumph can be assured. Of course, he added that this does not mean that the whole U.S. proletariat will learn to see that in the liberation of the Latin American peoples lies its own emancipation, nor will the entire Latin American people comprehend that a community of interests exists between them and the American working class. But the very fact that a parallel struggle goes on will signify that an objective alliance exists between them, perhaps not a formal alliance, but indeed a very active one. The sooner the American proletarian vanguard in North, Central, and South America understands the necessity for a closer revolutionary collaboration in the struggle against the common enemy, the more tangible and fruitful that alliance will be. To clarify, illustrate, and organize that struggle, herein lies one of the most important tasks of the Fourth International. As the inheritors of the Fourth International, this task today falls to the IMT, the International Marxist Tendency. Now, the relationship between U.S. imperialism and Latin America historically and today is a classic example of Lenin's understanding of this question. Even more important, though, is the organic relationship shared by all workers and oppressed peoples in this hemisphere, our shared histories, struggles, triumphs, and defeats. The economies and peoples of the Americas are deeply intertwined, as are our common enemies, the capitalists and imperialists of all nations. Like wildfires, birds, or the billions of dollars that flow freely from one country to another, revolutions do not respect borders. Nothing lasts forever, not even U.S. imperialism. If we do our work correctly, we will succeed in building a socialist federation of the Americas as an integral part of a world socialist federation. And at long last, humanity will be on the road to a world without imperialism, classes, money, or the state. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Big thanks as always to Laura Brown and to Gage Tijerina, our audiovisual producers whose hard work behind the scenes makes these episodes possible. If you liked what you heard today, please share, subscribe, and give us a five-star rating which will help other listeners find us. Or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to Socialist Revolution magazine. Better yet, if you're a communist, why not join the IMT and bring these ideas to your family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers? You can learn more about us and about getting involved at socialistrevolution.org. Stay healthy and safe and keep fighting the good fight, the fight for socialist revolution in our lifetime. Long live the working class and long live the world revolution and communism.